You're listening to Inward with Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld on the Shefa Podcast Network. Join Rabbi Joey as he guides us through the world and major works of Kabbalah, Hasidic masters, and Jewish philosophy, shedding light on the inner life of the soul. Okay, so tonight's shir, where we begin the series of shirim on the school of Ishbetz and Radzin, should be the Rafua Shalema for my good friend. A good friend doesn't really cover what it, exactly it is, but David Weinberg, David Henoch Mordechai Ben Freda Simcha. That any Hisairus, any Avoida that emerges, or any Birur, really, any clarity that emerges out of these shirim should be for a complete and speedy refuah for Davidal. Now, it's really with a lot of fear, trepidation is the wrong word, it's with a lot of fear that I begin or embark on the process of talking about the base medrash of Ishbitz and Radzin. And on a certain level, everything that we've said into this point has been influenced by Ishbitz and Radzin and has been a preparation for discussing Ishbitz and Radzin. I said in a previous shir that the shirim on Reish Milin from Rav Kook and the shirim on the Kabbalah or the outlook of the Kabbalistic interpretation of Rav Shlomo Yashav the Leshem Shabbat I said how those series of shirim were preparations for the series of shirim on the inner world of addiction. In that both of those tzaddikim, both of those mikubalim, Rav Kook and his friend and teacher the Leshem taught us in the name of Rabbeinu Azriel of Gerona the great-grandfather of all of these ideas, who informed this series of teachings from the Arizal himself, is that God, so to speak, must be capable of manifesting within limitation, within that which is imperfect, within that which lacks, within that which appears to be destitute and stuck in the privation of existence. And it's specifically there when HaKadosh Baruch Hu reveals himself within the confines of this worldly existence that we're capable of disclosing a deeper level of infinitude. That it's one thing for Hashem to reveal himself as Ein Sof, without Gvul, in infinitude, without any limitation. But it's entire other thing when HaKadosh Baruch Hu shows us that he can manifest within limitation as well. Because then what we find is that even limitation, even that which speaks against the presence of God, even that which reminds us that God is not present in the world, even that realm of being bespeaks the presence of God. And through Rav Kook and through the Leshem, through the series of Shiram on addiction, when we discussed that lived embodied state in which we all experience this privation or this concealment of God, we then transitioned into the Esser Spheros, the 10 Spheros through a psychological lens, which allowed us a glimpse into what it means for the individual to emerge out of themselves into existence. And like we said in the last year, on the year of Malchus, that Malchus, described as a destitute Svira, as a Svira without any strength of its own, as a Svira without any content of its own, except that which is present within it, full disclosure without any 
preempted thoughts or any pretensions of what I'm trying to disclose, malchus, the lesle megar meklum, that is nothing of its own and it abides in utter destitution, that was a perfect introduction into the world of Ishbitz and Radzin, because the world of Ishbitz and Radzin starts off with the basic assumption that we find ourselves in a world that is apparently devoid of the presence of godliness. There's a teaching that's written throughout the generations of the Ishbitzer Radziner Tzadikim, and we're going to discuss them in a moment. And that teaching is as follows, based on the Zohar and the Sabbat de Mishpatim, famous chilek of the Zohar where the Chavraya of Rashbi, the friends, the gathering of Rashbi and his students, they come across this peddler, they come across this wandering individual walking with a donkey, and it turns out that he's carrying secrets with him. And very often in the Zohar, the things that appear to be happenstance or meaningless or insignificant or secondary are quite literally the opposite, that that which appears to be random is in truth coming to disclose a deep significant idea. Or those who appear to be destitute and poor and impoverished and devoid of any wisdom in truth carry the deepest wisdom. That's one of the wonderful secrets of the narratives of the Zohar Kadosh. And this Zakin, this old individual with his donkey, begins a discussion of the Razin de Razin, the secrets of secrets, discussing the presence of Torah in the world, the association between the Torah and a princess who's stuck in a palace, with a prince who's coming to redeem her, to interpret her properly. And in the process of this discussion in the Sabbath de Mishpatim, there's a statement that this princess is an Ulamta Shapirta, a beautiful person a beautiful princess, the Lespa Enin, without any eyes. And the Tzadikim of Ishbitz and Radzin, when understanding, this, when understanding this statement from the Zohar, they say that the Lespa Enin, that's devoid of vision, devoid of eyes, is a statement that applies to the sphere of Malchus. That when a person looks at the sphere of Malchus, when a person looks at the world in its manifestation, in its presence, the way we engage the day-to-day reality of our everydayness of life, the vicissitudes of being in a world that is devoid of the presence of God in any explicit way. It's our job to bring vision, to bring our eyes and to illuminate this ulamta shapirta delays ba'enin, this world that is devoid of eyes. And the tzaddikim of Ishbit say that what does it mean to live in a world that is devoid of eyes? It means to live in a world that is on the surface apparently devoid of hashkacha, in a world that is apparently devoid of order, devoid of the guiding countenance of godly wisdom that emanates from the infinite into the world at every moment, to live in a world that is unfair, to live in a world that is concealed as opposed to revealed, to live in a world that is more often dark than it is light. And it's our job to take this blind world, this world that appears to be devoid of vision, devoid of the wisdom that can penetrate into the nooks and crannies in the corners of this worldly existence, it's our job to come and apply vision, godly vision, enlightened vision, a vision of biru or clarified sight that enables us to look at a world that at the one hand seems apparently devoid of any order, a world that appears to be unfair and harsh in all manners of harshness. Lev Yodeya each individual understands the bitterness of their own heart that emerges when they contemplate the day-to-day experiences of this world. And it's our job, according to these tzaddikim of this base medrash, of Ishbitz and Radzin, to bring eyes into the world, to allow our eyes to look at the world in a way that 
redeems the meaninglessness, that redeems the chaos, that redeems the mindless process of oilam kimen hagonoheg. Like Chazal say, and the Ishbitzer Tzadikim and the Radziner Tzadikim speak about this when discussing this statement in the Zohar of the world being devoid of vision, that oilam kimen hagonoheg. A person can steal and a person can rob and a person can engage in all sorts of negative behaviors, yet they'll still be successful in certain aspects of life. I can steal seed and I can plant it and I can grow and I can become rich off of it. And Chazal stay on this, that God has created a world that operates according to the strict order of being. And very often that means that it appears to be devoid of the guiding light of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But the tzaddikim of Ishbitz and Razin want us to look into this mundanity, look into the fallenness of being, look into this apparent unfairness of existence and apply our vision to it, to bring our eyes, to bring ene chachma, to look at the world with eyes of wisdom that are aware that beneath the facade of unfairness, beneath the facade of savlanut, of suffering, and that's a word that we're going to discuss throughout all of the shirim, savlanut becomes a guiding key term in the writings of Ishbitz and Radzin. And we're going to see this powerful interrelationship between different iterations of the word savel or savlanut. That on the one hand, savel means suffering, but on the other hand, it means to be sovel. It also means to endure. It also means to have savlanut, patience, a presence of mind to look at things that appear to be otherwise than the way I want them to be and the capacity to face them with the temperance of calmness of spirit that is aware that in spite of the burning fires that emerge into this world that appears to be devoid of godly wisdom, we still have the ability through our eyes to develop and cultivate a sense of holy patience, of a patience that is aware that the present way that things function is not the way that things will always function. Now, one of the guiding principles to this series of shirim is actually going to be something that I read from a very good friend of mine, Rabbi David Bashevkin. And David Bashevkin, in his incredible book, Synagogue, where he discusses the, the value of educating our generation in Yahadus, in Judaism and spirituality and mindful being, through the lens of the hither side of experience. That typically we assume that it's only the positive expectations that we have that we complete that become the guiding principle in our lives. And David Bashevkin, along with Sadiqim, who preceded him hundreds of years, thousands of years, came along and said that it's not only in the brightness of day that we're capable of disclosing our connection to God or to the connection to our true selves, but it's also within our fallenness and it's also within our broken states and our sins and our transgressions in whatever way a person wants to define those terms. And I suggest the book, Synagogue, to understand all the various ways of rabbinic interpretation of the word sin. The way I like to look at the word chet is something the Lubavitcher Rebbe spoke about very often, that to transgress something means to miss the point. And David Bashevkin writes in his book, Synagogue, that the time has come that we try and apply the teachings of Ishbitz and Radzin in a practical way, not only in discussing the ideological or fetishized aspects of determinism or sin for the sake of God that so many people have tapped into in trying to understand this world of Ishbitz and Radzin, something we're going to speak about at length, but rather it's time for us to find the inner koyach, the potency, 
that abides within this school of thought that in my humble opinion and the opinion of my Rubeim, of Rav Moshe Weinberger, of the tzaddikim of our generation, that it's specifically in the world of Ishbetz and Radzin that we can find the koichos, the strengths, the potency to be mitmodeid, to face and to confront in a vulnerable but strong way the reality of what it means to live in 2019 when Ulamta Shapirta delays ba'enin, that to live in a world that is devoid of the godly vision, in a world that appears blind to justice, and a world that appears blind to all things good, it's specifically now that we have the capacity of disclosing the light of Ishbitz and Radzin, not only into our worldview, but into our lives, and into the practical aspects of our lives. Now what I wanted to discuss tonight, Be'ezra Sashem, is not going to be a topic, but it's going to be what I can only describe as a rough introduction to the world of Ishbitz and Radzin. Now, this is going to be difficult for me only because for the last month or so, all I have been learning are the works of Ishbitz and Radzin. It's been 10 years already that all I've been learning is the works of Ishbitz and Radzin. And when it comes to introducing the world of Ishbitz and Radzin, the difficult task is that it's almost as important to unlearn what we know about Ishbitz and Radzin as it is to learn what Ishbitz and Radzin actually is. So, in this introduction, in this series of Shirim, or the introduction to this series of Shirim, my goal is to introduce, contextually speaking, what Ishbitz and Radzin, this base medrash, was coming to do in terms of the Hasidic movement that emerged out of the Balshem Tov HaKadosh, and also to specify the specific strength or the specific potency that this particular base medrash has to offer us. Now, as we're going to see in the series of Shirim, and as of now, it's 10 shirim, and we'll see based on the responses and based on interest, it could be a thousand shirim. But Ishbitz and Radzin have specific topics to them, specific ideas, specific pockets of energy where Ishbitz and Radzin have the most to offer in terms of the intellectual or theological even understanding of a sugya. But beyond that, the parenthetical statements that I will be making, the tangential statements that I will be making, the filler that fills the empty space between the black letters of the Torahs of Ishbitz and Radzin, which will become the textual markers of each shear, where I'm going to be bringing in a particular source and learning through that particular source, the filler, that white space, is also going to be informed by Ishbitz and Radzin. Meaning to say that Rav Tzadok HaKohen Lublin, a student of the Meishi Loach, someone who we're going to discuss not at length, because we're actually not going to be talking about Rav Sadok very much in this series of Shirim, and we're going to see why in a moment. But Rav Sadok speaks about the Gemara in Mesech Sukkah, which speaks about the value of the words of Tamid Chachamim. That the words of Tamid Chachamim bring about a certain nuance that we have to try and understand. That yes, it's abundantly clear to us that when Tamid Chachamim and Sadiqim are speaking words of Torah, it's our job to pay attention and to listen. But what about their sikhas kulin? What about their mundane conversation? What about that which appears to be outside the realm of kudusha, outside the realm of significance? And Rav Tzadok HaKohen Melablin in Sidka Satzadik in numerous places, and he says that he heard this, Shamati. When Rav Tzadok HaKohen Melablin writes Shamati, the Masorah is that he's bringing down the teaching that he heard from his Rebbe, the Meishiloach, Rav Mordechai Yosef of Ishbitz. It's specifically Tamid Chachamim who are capable of disclosing, even within their mundanity, even within their secondary mode of conversation, 
the insignificant statements that they give, even there we can find meaning. Now, lahavdil elef avdalos, and in no way is this trying to ascribe any significance to my words. The words are significant if you choose to listen to the words, otherwise they're insignificant. But the series of shirim are going to be built on this idea from Rav Tzadok, that the Torah of these shirim, the specific texts of these shirim, are going to be primary texts from within the corpus of Ishbitz and Radzin, as we're going to name the different books that comprise that library, this massive library of the Hasidus of Ishbitz and Radzin. But all of the filler and all of the connective points and all of the side points that I make are also going to be informed deeply by the way of learning of Ishbitz and Radzin. And if there is a particular idea that's mentioned parenthetically beyond the sources given in each shear, I ask that anybody who's interested in understanding where the source comes from to email me or, or to reach out to me and I will share it with you because the world of Ishbitz and Radzin is so large and so encompassing that it's almost impossible to figure out exactly which Torahs to teach. And therefore, for the sake of Shirim, I was mitzamsing myself to choose nine particular sugyos or ten particular sugyos, at least at this point, to discuss. But that doesn't mean that that's the sum total of the teachings of Ishbitz and Radzin, and that most of what I'm saying is going to be particularly through the lens of Ishbitz and Radzin. Now, to begin a little bit of the contextualization of Ishbitz and Radzin, we have to understand what they're coming to do before we even approach the biographical information, the historical information, I'd like to read a single teaching. Now, the grandson of the Beis Yaakov, Rav Yaakov of Ishbitz, who we're going to meet in a few moments, wrote a very important sefer called Dor Yesharim. The straightness of the generations or generations that are straight in their behavior, this concept of Yashar or Yesharim is going to become a very significant word when it comes to understanding Ishbitz Radzin, because as we're going to see, the architect, as Shaul Magid writes in his very important revolutionary book, Hasidism on the Margin, describes of Gershon Henach, the third generation of Radzin, the grandson of the Meshiloach, as the architect of Radzin Hasidus, or Ishbitz Hasidus, and there's a lot of validity to that claim. But this is a statement in Dor Yesharim, in the generations of the straight, and it says as follows, and what I'm reading from is actually the English translation of this from Wisdom of the Heart, from Ora Wiskind Elper. Ora Wiskind Elper wrote a very important book called Wisdom of the Heart, where she tried to correct certain historical misunderstandings of this base medrash. And we're going to discuss that in a moment. But here I want to read just a ketta, a small paragraph, which in my mind resonates so deeply with the path of Ishbitz and Radzin and allows us to really open our hearts and enter into the world that Ishbitz Radzin is coming to teach us. She writes as follows, and this is a direct quote from Chaim Simchalainer, the grandson of the Beis Yaakov, who wrote the Sefer Dor Yesharim. This is a, a, a great nephew of the Sod Yesharim, of Rav Gershon Henach. Sometimes I was afraid to be alone at night or to go outside by myself. But my grandfather, the Beis Yaakov of blessed memory, tried in many ways to help me become courageous. Once, late at night, when no one but I was in his room, he said, would you like to go for a walk with me? I answered, if you'll be with me, I would. So he took his cane and he said, come with me. We walked together through the darkness and he showed me different things. 
and he talked to me about how one shouldn't be afraid of anything in the world. When it comes to trying to understand what the world of Ishbitz and Radzin is bringing down to our consciousness, this light of Ishbitz and Radzin, this spiritual potency that emerges into the world with the formation of Ishbitz and Radzin in that fateful encounter where Rav Mordechai Yosef of Ishbitz leaves his Rebbe, the Katzker Rebbe, in 1839, on the night of Simchas Torah, during the sixth HaKafa, and he decides to start his own camp, decides to start his own school of thought, this event allows us to be mitmodet, to face a world that is terrifying. The basic function of this world is that it frightens us. It fills us with fear. All sorts of fears. Fears that are both practical and objectified. The things that go bump in the night. The things that happen to us in our unconscious lives as well as our conscious lives. In the unconscious lives of our families and the conscious lives of our families as well as the anxieties of day-to-day life, those anticipatory fears, those feelings that this world is too untrue to be comforting, that this world is too fragile to provide me with any sustaining sense of comfort, that it's by facing these particular fears that the Beis Yaakov, the son of the Meshiloach and the father of Gershon Henech, the Sodi Sharm, comes and tells us, let me walk with you through the night. Let me hold your hand and point out all of those terrifying things, all of those pockets of anxiety, all of those areas where we are so fragile, where we are so vulnerable, where we recognize the destitution of our own subjectivity and the fragility of what it means to be a human being in this world who's trying to serve a God that appears to be absent or trying to reach a destination that is blocked and obscured by mechitzot, by separations and partitions and masachim and barriers, that in this world that appears to be so frightful and so frightening at every level, on the emotional level, on the intellectual level, and on the embodied level, the Beis Yaakov, as representative of the Torah, of the Or of Ishbitz and Radzin, is coming to tell us, hold my hand and let me show you how a Jew is not supposed to be afraid of anything in the world. That underneath all of the distortion, underneath all of the difficulty, underneath all of the confines of what it means to be a mensch who lives in a world of limitation and apparent destitution and concealment of godliness, hidden behind the fissures and the cracks and the broken parts of this worldliness, the Beis Yaakov and the school of Ishbitz and Radzin comes and holds our hands and it says, do not be afraid. There is nothing to be afraid of. Yes, the path is difficult. Yes, the path is obscured and it's filled with confusion and sveikos and savlanut and the need to bear ourselves and gird ourselves to bear the burden of our baggage. Nevertheless, when a person learns to apply their vision of Chachma, when a person learns to apply the eyes of the Meshiloach, of the Beis Yaakov, of the Sodi Sharm, of the Teferis Yosef, of all of the Tzadikim of Ishbitz and Radzin, we will find the capacity within ourselves to be mitmodeid with the Savlanut, to face the burdensome nature of this worldliness. And not only to face it, but to realize that it is only through this darkness and concealment, it is only through this abundance of sveikos and doubts and confusions and lack of clarity and the non-knowing of what it is that I'm trying to do and the ultimate inability to know anything in any positivistic way except 
relying on this deep abiding faith that God is present in everything I do, and faith is predicated in absence and darkness, that is what the Beis Yaakov and Ishbitz try and come to tell us, not to be afraid in this world, to face the world and to find the light of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, not in spite of the fears or the anxieties, but specifically because of the fear and the anxiety. Contextually speaking, historically speaking, the school of Ishbitz and Radzin begins way before its actual formation. There's been an incredible dissertation, actually, by a Jew named Aviezer Kohn. Aviezer Kohn, the little bit that I know of him is that he was a student of Rav Shagar Skusiyogenalenu, which is enough of a gushpanka of a stamp to make his writings into a Sefer HaKadosh, who studied under Chaviva Padaya, the great-granddaughter of Yehuda Padaya, the Beis Lechem Yehuda, the famous Mekubal HaEloki, the godly Mekubal who wrote on the Arizal and opened up the Arizal for a generation of Svardi Mekubalim and Ashkenazi Mekubalim, which hitherto was undisclosed. And he wrote in his dissertation about the Meshiloach an incredible approach, an incredible approach to the teachings of the Meshiloach and one that was unique in its nature. Because prior to this dissertation of Aviezer Kohn, the entire focus on the school of Ishbitz and Radzin has been on the fetishized aspect of determinism or the question of free will or the question of Avera Lishma or sinning for the sake of heaven. And these ideas, because of their radical nature, because their marginal nature, became so exciting to the modern consciousness, which found itself stuck in the confines of theological tenets of Hasidism, but yet wanting something more. So Ishbitz and Radzin, for these previous generations, became this entry point of stepping beyond the boundaries of the law stepping beyond the confines of what it means to be a law-abiding individual, law in its most abstract and most practical form. And it was only with Aviezer Kohn who came along and pointed out that the Chiddush of the Ishbitzer and the Chiddush of the Radziner and this world of Hasidus, this Or of Hasidus, was not because of this deterministic impulse that denies the reality of free will or that fetishizes a sin for the sake of heaven or moving beyond the boundaries of communal work for the sake of individualistic spiritual fervor, heaven forbid, but rather there's another aspect of the, of the world of Ishbitz and Radzin, which is in truth where the secret lies. And that's in their conception of subjectivity, their conception of what it means to be an individual who lives in a world with God, where God appears to be absent. And one of the most important parts of Aviezer Kohn's dissertation is that he points out that the world of Ishbitz doesn't emerge out of nowhere. It's not ex nihilo, it doesn't come from nothing, but rather it's preceded by generations of Hasidic thought. And Aviezer Kohn's teaching brings us back to the, the world of the, the Yid HaKadosh, the Yudi HaKadosh of Pshischa, the student of the Choyzim in Lublin, who came along and radicalized on a certain level the sense of what it means to be a subjective servant of a Kaddish Baruch Hu. And his student, Rav Simcha Bunim of Pshischa, the original revolutionary who came to renew the profound and intense light of Hasidus, the school of Rav Simcha Bunim of Pshischa, the pharmacist of Pshischa, who Baruch Hashem, I was able to, on Friday night in my shul in the Aguda of St. Louis, 
there's a Jew who's a Ben Acharbener, at least the, the Mesorah is, the legend is that he's a Ben Acharbener of Simchon of Pshischa. And one of the things that he does every Friday night is he hands out snuff. And in Mickey Rosen's beautiful biography of Rav Simcha Bunim of Pshischa, The Quest for Authenticity, he describes Rav Simcha Bunim's engagement with the world of snuff, engagement with what it means to smell something and what it means to give of oneself. But that's neither here nor there. And I was able to ask this Jew, this old Jew who's been through many Gilgulim in life for a bracha, because I'm beginning to give a shirim on your great-great-great-grandfather's student, Rav Mordechai Yosef of Ishbitz. And whether or not this Jew knew what I was talking about when I asked him on Friday night for this bracha, he paused and he closed his eyes and he wasn't ready to give me a bracha immediately. I've never spoken to this person before. And after a few seconds, he opens his eyes and he says to me, you should properly convey the teachings. Now, whether it's Ruach HaKodesh or whether he knew exactly what I was talking about doesn't make a difference to me, but in my mind, that was a significant bracha. So you'll be able to see that the Meshiloach of Mordechai Yosef is not born out of nowhere, but he comes directly from Rav Simcha Bunim of Pshischa. And then after Rav Simcha Bunim of Pshischa, the Kutzker Rebbe, Rav Menachem Mendel of Kutz, Rav Menachem Mendel Morgenstern of Kutzk, opens up his own base medrash. And the Meshiloach, Rav Mordechai Yosef of Ishbit, spends 13 years learning under his Rebbe, Rav Menachem Mendel of Kutzk. And after 13 years in 1839, on the cusp of the, the year 1840, which was filled with the fervor of Mashiach, based on the statement in the Zohar that in the sixth millennia, in the 600th year, which when we account for our secular calendar aligns with the world of 1840, the year that the Leshem Shabbat HaChalema was born, a year that mystically speaking and Kabbalistically speaking and messianically speaking was a world pregnant with anticipation, the Meshidach decides to leave the world of Kutsk, Rav Lebele Eger, the grandson of Rabbi Akiva Eger, the son of Rabbi Shlomila Eger, who we're going to speak about parenthetically because, again, he's not going to be the main part of the sugya. He said that anybody who claims that they know exactly why the Meshiloach left the Kutzker Rebbe clearly doesn't know. And anybody who claims that they don't know, maybe once upon a time they'll have the ability to understand. A lot has been written about why the Meshiloach left the Kutzker. A lot has been discussed about why the Meshiloach left the Kutzker, but so far, we have no idea why the Meshiloach left the Kutzker. What we do know is that the Meshiloach and the world of Ishbitz and Radzin describe a phenomenology of Avodah Hashem, a way of serving Hashem that is almost the sheer opposite of the Kutzker Rebbe. The opposite in the sense that the two of them together comprise two sides of the same coin. That for the Kutzker Rebbe, the emphasis was on the impulse to own our own subjectivity, to serve God with a full responsibility, an awareness that I am responsible and I am accountable for every aspect of my existence. And therefore, if I am accountable and I am responsible, I must descend and penetrate into the depths of my being. I must cast out any impulses that arrive from any place other than the direct desire of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, a standard that was very difficult to live by. The Meshiloach, on the other hand, in the school of Ishbitz and Radzin, also take on this role of trying to penetrate deeply into the subjective makeup of what it means to be a servant of God, what it means to be a self in the face of God, a self who is trying to develop an immediate relationship with God. 
The only difference is that for the Mishiloach, the bottom drops out. And suddenly at the depths of our own subjectivity and our abject responsibility for ourselves, and we find that at the core of ourselves, we are nothing but the divine will of God. Something that we're going to discuss a little bit later on in the series of Shirim. But the Meshiloach left the Katzkarebi in 1839 and he started his own school. And his son, the Beis Yaakov, was the continuity of that school. Now here we have another machloka, not a machlokas, but a difference. That the Meshiloach had two main students. Those students were Rav Leibla Eger, the author of Tyrus MS and Imre MS, a beautiful base medrash of Hasidus Leblin that is intensely disclosive of what he learned by his Rebbe the Meshiloach, in spite of the fact that he only quotes him multiple times. And after of Labela Eger was finished and was done with his Hanhaga, he was no longer alive to lead that Hasidus, Rav Tzadak HaKohen Milablin came onto the scene. Rav Tzadak HaKohen Milablin. There's not enough time to begin to discuss the power and the importance of who Rav Tzadak HaKohen Milablin is. But for the sake of our shirim, we're not going to be discussing Rav Tzadak HaKohen Milablin at all. I've made a deliberate effort not to learn the teachings of Rav Tzadok in spite of how much I love learning the teachings of Rav Tzadok, because the teachings of Rav Tzadok are an iteration of the world of the Meshiloach, of Rav Mordechai Yosef Ishbitzer. And instead, what we're going to be focusing on is the descendants of the Meshiloach, who comprise the eventual world of Ishbitzer and Radzin. Now, the Ishbitzer, Rav Mordechai Yosef Liner of Ishbitz, had a son whose name was Rav Yaakov. He had another son, who wrote the Sefer Noz Desha. Now, when it comes to the Sefer Noz Desha, I, I suggest strongly to read the weekly writings of Rav Ruven Bashnak. Rav Ruven Bashnak, another student of Rav Moshe Weinberger, has spent years trying to illuminate the world with the teachings of Ishbitz and Radzin, wrote a book called The Pathways of Ishbitz, or Pathways of the Heart, I believe is the title of the book. And what he's undertook for himself on a weekly basis is to elucidate and illuminate the writings of the Nos Desha. What's unique about the Nos Desha is that he was the son of the Meshiloach, but he did not become the successor in the Hasidic dynasty. And he doesn't quote from the Sefer Meshiloach very often, a Sefer that is fraught with a certain level of political or even ideological difficulties, which we'll discuss next week, Bezras Hashem. But the Nos Desha is a direct source of the Torahs of the Meshiloach, and anybody who's interested in really understanding that field, that Torah, that world of the iteration of the Meshiloach, I highly recommend not only reading the works of Ruven Bashnak, but also paying attention to the weekly Torahs that he's writing and illuminating and elucidating from the Noz Desha. The brother of the Noz Desha, the other son of the Meshiloach, was Rav Yaakov of Ishbitz, who becomes known as the Beis Yaakov. Now, the Beis Yaakov was famous for his Gaonis, for his ingenuity and his genius in Tairas Nigla, in the revealed teachings of the Torah, as well as Tairas Nister. There are certain academics who have claimed that the Beis Yaakov was not a direct result of the Meshiloach, as if to say that the Meshiloach skips a generation, and it's only in the writings of his grandson, the Sod Yisharim, of Gershon Henech of Radzin, that we see a continuity of the teachings of the Meshiloach. 
Now, that was the postulation and the claim of Shoal Magad in his book, Hasidism on the Margin. And it's not without textual or historical validity, but Ora Wiskin-Helper came along in, his, in her book, Wisdom of the Heart, and she corrected the, this misnomer. She came to show us that, no, the Beis Yaakov is not a deviation from the teachings of his father, the Meishi Loach, that Rav Yaakov is not a deviation from the teachings of Rav Mordechai Yosef, but rather Rav Yaakov is a calmness of spirit that comes to disclose the teachings of the Meishi Loach in a way that are applicable and appropriate for the world. The Beis Yaakov comes along and he writes, he doesn't write any svarim. His son, the, the Soed Yisharim of Gershon Henech, who we're going to discuss in a moment, compiles the teachings of his father. But the Beis Yaakov ala Torah was accepted throughout Klal Yisrael. Not only in the realms of Hasidus was he known, but he was known for his goodness and he was known for his utter command of Taras Anigla, of the revealed teachings, Taras Anister, as well as Taras HaChasidus. One of the difficult points of history is the fact that the Soed Yisharim writes in multiple places that aside from the writings a la Torah from his father, which we have succinct in our hands, there were also writings on the Moadim, which we have, Baruch Hashem, a little bit of in Beis Yaakov. But there was also a parish on the Eitzchayim and pre-Eitzchayim from the Arizal. And the Soed Yisharim writes that on one shar there was 200 pages of writing, and these pages were lost in the Holocaust. And that's a difficult thing to think about because to have the Beis Yaakov's parish of the Kabbalah of the Arizal would change history. It would finally allow us to find within the Arizal, within Kabbalah, within that metaphysical system that appears to be so devoid of reality or removed and abstract from our day-to-day lives, we would have been capable of finding within the everydayness of our experience the profundity of the teachings of the Arizal. But on Hagahel Yonah, the divine plan of history has removed those writings from us. So we're stuck or we're left with a profound corpus, the profound reality and library of the writings of the Beis Yaakov ala Torah. After the Beis Yaakov, we have Rav Gershon Henech of Radzin. Now Rav Gershon Henech of Radzin, who is going to be the name that we probably hear most in these series of Shirim, is referred to in numerous ways. By some, it's referred to as the Soed Yisharim, after the name of his writings. Now, the Soed Yisharim wrote Ala Torah, and he also wrote on the Moadim. The Soed Yisharim also wrote other Svarim. He's known as the Baal HaTcheles, as the individual who came to renew Tcheles and Sitis. And that's going to be the culmination of our Shir, really discussing the concept of Tcheles, which is the same etymological roots as Tachles, as purpose. Because what Rav Gershon Hanach of Radzin was trying to do was renew purpose in the world, was reconnect us with the purpose that each and every one of us have in our own individual hearts. Through our own subjective relationship with God, each and every one of us have our own tachlis, have our own purpose. And our purpose differs from each and every person. And each individual's subjective purpose in reality and their relationship with godliness is unique to their own inner world. That's what Rav Gershon Hanach came to renew. Came to renew the fact that there's a tachlis for everything. And even those things which appear secondary and meaningless and extra, in truth, they speak and disclose the deep tachlis. Like Rabbi Nachman of Breslov says, there's a tachlis and there's a tachlis of the tachlis. There's a purpose and there's a purpose for the purpose. 
that teleological impulse to look at every moment in reality and see that it is suffused and saturated with meaning to the point that it overflows with meaning, to the point that it's difficult for us to convey it in any words, that's what the Sayyid Yasharim came to teach us. The Sayyid Yasharim also wrote a famous parish on the tzava, on the will of Rabbi Lazar Hagadol, of the Pirka de Rabbi Lazar, the Manda Umar of the Pirka de Rabbi Lazar. And it's interesting that in the tradition of Ishbitz and Radzin, meaning after the Meshiloach's death, there were two camps that emerged out of the Meshiloach's teachings. And this is after, like we said, the Meshiloach removed himself from the Kutzke Rebbe. There was the school of Lublin, which was championed and led by Rav Leibla Eger and then Rav Tzodak HaKohen Lublin. And there was a school of Ishbitz Radzin, of Rav Yaakov, the son of the Meshiloach, who eventually moved to Radzin. And this son of the, Mesh, the, of the Beis Yaakov, the Soyd Yisharm, Rav Gershon Henach of Radzin, becomes the architect of this stream of Hasidus. He not only compiles the writings of his father, the Beis Yaakov, and gives us what we have of the Beis Yaakov, he's also the one who compiled the teachings of the Meshiloach, that he spent, I believe it was 16 years, alive with the Meshiloach. And the only teachings that we have extant from the Meshiloach are the teachings that Rav Gershon Henach, liner of Radzin, gave us. So on a certain level, even when we're learning the Meshiloach, even when we're learning the grandfather or the architect of Ishbitz Radzin, and even when we're learning the patriarch, the Beis Yaakov of Radzin, we're also always learning the interpretations and the thoughts of Rav Gershon Henech Leiner of Radzin, because he's the one who's compiled these teachings. And therefore, it's specifically in these teachings of Rav Gershon Henech that we're going to see the fullest expression of what Ishbitz and Radzin has to show us. Now, something unique is that within the patrilineal line of Hasidus, Ishbitz, and Radzin, not following the students Rav Leibola or Rav Tzadok, the Soyde Sharm is actually referred to as the Baal Orchos Chaim. Orchos Chaim is the name of the Sefer that the Soyde Sharm wrote on the Tzava of Rabbeinu Elazar. And this is a Tzava that's not really Hasidic or Kabbalistic in nature, but rather it's Talmudic. This is a tzava that's brought down in certain writings of the Rishonim, which is devoid of any sources in Chazal, which states certain claims about how to function in the world. And what the Soyd Yasharim did in his Ga'inis, and again, this was another genius in Nigla and Nister, what he did was he tried to show a source for every single statement in the tzava of Rabbeinu Elazar. And this writing that he put on the tzava, he called Orchos Chaim. And the question that emerged in my mind today is of all the writings of the Sayyid Yasharim, of all the writings of this school of thought, in particular this third generation, why would we choose the most exoteric, the most nigla-based, the most Talmudic-based, halachic-based sefer that he has? Why would we refer to him, this appellation of the Bal Orchos Chaim? And I believe that one of the answers to this question might be that the concept of Orchos Chaim, of pathways in life, is the stamp, is the gushpanka, is the determining factor of what Ishbitz and Radzin is coming to teach us. That Ishbitz and Radzin is not some intellectual school of thought which comes to teach some radical version of determinism or to negate the concept of free will and therefore to bring about this concept of the marginal space of antinomianism, God forbid. Rather, Ishbitz and Radzin is coming to teach us Orchos Chaim. It's coming to teach us how to live in the world, like we said from David Bashevkin, 
that it's the time has come for us to apply the teachings of Radzin and Ishbitz into our own lives in this strange time of 2019. And I believe that there's a lot of significance to that hope. And my Rebbe also believes that very deeply. This is something that Rav Moshe Weinberger Shlita has been screaming for years. Rav Shlomo Karbach started it. The Orchos Chayim means that we have to develop pathways of life. That the Torah of the Hasidus of Ishbitz and Radzin, or the light of the Baal Shem Tov really, the light of the Arizal, is only coming to teach us how to live life how to learn to function in this world on a day-to-day basis, how to deal with the concealment and the difficulties and the struggles and the pain and the joy and the vicissitudes that each and every one of us goes through through our own subjective perception of what this world is on a daily basis in our unconscious minds as well as our conscious minds, in our animalistic soul as well as our spiritual root, that each and every one of us go through this world with millions and millions and millions of countless moments and it's Orchos Chaim that this school of thought is coming to teach us. It's coming to teach us how to live in this world. It's coming to teach us how to abide in a world that is so abundantly absent from Kedusha and spirituality, and where pain and suffering and sphakos and doubts and lack of clarity seem to color the screen for each and every one of us. It's specifically the Saidi Sharm, these Orchos Chaim that come to teach us, this is how you should live life. These are the Birurim that you must go through the avoid of clarification, the basic assumption that we start off dirty and our job is to cleanse ourselves, as opposed to the generally assumed space that says we start off pure and, we ha- and then we descend into lack of clarity. The world of Ishbitz and Radzin starts from the bottom up. In the Arizal, in the writings of the Arizal, there are two fundamental concepts. These concepts of or Yashar and or Choser, a light that descends from on high to below, and a light that ascends from below to on high. The Rashash of Shalom Sharabi's Chusia Ganalenu, and the Arizal himself in Mavo Sha'arim writes that if you want to come and synthesize all of Kabbalah, all of Panimiya Satora, into two words, it would be Or Yashar and Or Choser, Or Mayin Dukhrin and Mayin Nuchman. And the light that descends from above to below, and the light that ascends from below to above. Most of Hasidus, most of Kabbalah, has been speaking to us in a way of from above to below, starting off with the ideal, and then trying to understand the real, trying to understand how this worldliness, in all of its brokenness, can stim and synthesize itself with this primordial spirituality of godliness. Like the Eitz Chaim starts off with the Tzimtzum of Or Insof, it starts off with infinity, and it ends with Shara Klipa. Because Kabbalah comes to teach us how the infinite God comes to manifest in a finite world. The Baal Shem Tov HaKadosh came to show us how those ontological realms of worldliness and being and formation of worlds exist within each and every one of us. But still, Really up until the base Medrash of the Yid HaKadosh, or of Simcha Bunim Pshischa, or the Katzka Rebbe whose teachings animate every step that we take in the writings of the Meshiloach, in spite of the fact that there are certain conceptual differences between the two of them, which we'll discuss in future Shirim, the school of Ishbitz and Radzin begins from the bottom and tries to move up. The school of Ishbitz and Radzin starts from the brokenness of this worldliness. 
concealment and hester and svekos and doubts and confusion and lack of clarity and struggle and effort and the forcedness to abide with concealment, that is the ABC of Ishbitz and Radzin. Ishbitz and Radzin don't try and convince us of a world that is purified in some abstract form, or rather they come to say, yes, the world is broken, and it's specifically from within this broken world that you're forced to serve God. And not only are you forced to serve God from this world, but it's specifically in this world that we have the capacity of disclosing a deeper level of Kedusha. It's specifically in this world that we have the capacity of showing that all of our all-too-human nature, our broken subjectivity and the confines of selfhood are in truth the greatest vessels of disclosing godliness. This ma'ayan, this meishiloach, this waters that emerge from below to above. These are waters that have tasted of the future. When we talk about the deterministic impulse in the writings of Ishbitz and Radzin, when we talk about the possibility of negating free will, which again, as we stated at the outside, is simply one fetishized aspect of what Hasidus Ishbitz and Radzin has to say, but nevertheless, it's symbolic and disclosive of the essence of Ishbitz and Radzin. What we're going to come to find is that the school of Ishbitz and Radzin stands firmly in the present. It stands firmly in the historical confines of this worldliness, in the sense that in spite of the messianic impulse that abides within Ishbitz and Radzin, associated with the year that the Meshiloach left the Katskarebi 1840, and which animated the process of his grandson, the Soed Yesharim, through his task of Tcheles. Nevertheless, the school of Ishbitz and Radzin, as David Vashevkin writes in his book, Synagogue, there has never been any historical example of any antinomianism or any sin for the sake of heaven, that it was a very traditional school of thought, as we're going to see, which begs the question, where exactly were these ideas coming from and where exactly were they going? But Ishbitz and Radzin finds itself firmly planted in the present, yet with a vision, with the eyes on the future. And I believe that it's this impulse, this dialectical paradox of being stuck in the confines of past, past and present with a vision of what the future looks like that animates the teachings of Ishbitz and Radzin. This is a school of thought that saw the future, that tasted the future on the subjective level, that was deeply aware that there will come a time in history when the idea of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, when the foreknowledge of HaKadosh Baruch Hu emerges into the world, which is nothing but a consequence of the interpretations of the Balatani of Tzimtzum, there's nothing radical about the school of Ishbitz when you pay attention to the way that Hasidus interpreted the teachings of Luriana Kabbalah. In fact, there's nothing radical about Ishbitz or Radzin if you learn the Arizal himself, or you learn the Zohar, which for the Sod Yasharim became the archetype of the school of Ishbitz and Radzin, unlike other schools of thought that look to the Arizal. The Sod Yasharim tried to emerge back to the Zohar HaKadosh itself, as is abundantly clear in his writings in the Psicha or the Shar Emuna, the introduction to the teachings of his father and grandfather, as well as Teferas HaChanochi, his parish on the Zayar HaKadosh. That Ishbitz is situated and planted firmly in the present, yet abundantly aware that there will be a future that will come about at a certain point and retroactively show us that even the past and the present were part and parcel of the future unknown. And it's within this paradox of living in the present, 
yet abundantly aware that there will be a future that comes about that shows us that everything that has happened in our present moment is but a dream of exile. So there emerges this contradiction between living in the present and living in the future. And I believe that this impulse to look into the future, to look into the times of Mashiach, of Ahmad Asi, that world that is perpetually coming and emerging into our world, and to move back out of it with the realization that I have to live in this world, and I can't live within the confines of messianic reality or messianic consciousness, I believe that that original absorption within that messianic world and then the retreat back out of it into the realm of history, I believe that that's what leaves its mark and trace in the writings of Ishbitz. So that Ishbitz and Radzin are coming to speak a language of the future in the present. They're not telling us to run to the future. They're telling us how to live the future in the present moment, which is why the Bala Tcheles, the Soed Yisharim, his entire avoid in life was to be machadish the mitzvah of Tcheles. The tachlis, the end, which the Arizal says will only emerge at the end of days. He wrote a commentary on Sidre Taharos, a Goinic work which compiled all the writings of Chazal from the Yerushalmi and the Bavli and the Tosefta, compiling them, almost making a new Gemara of sorts for the teachings that will only apply in the future. As my good friend Ravuvim Bashnik pointed out to me, and I've known this to be true, but I didn't have a textual source for it, one of the Minhagim or Hanhagos of Ishbitz and Razin is that they drink the fifth kos on Leil HaSeder, that kos of Vehevesi, that kos that represents that not only have I experienced exile, but I have also tasted redemption. And it's specifically from this world that we're going to try and identify 10 particular trends, 10 particular ideas, which will help us enter into the world of Ishbitz, enter into the world of Radzin, to understand how, like the Sod Yasharim teaches us, the trajectory of Soda Satora was Moshe Rabbeinu, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the Arizal, the Baal Shem Tov, the Meshilawach and the Beis Yaakov. That in this or in this world of Ishbitz and Radzin, the only teachings that exist are the worlds of Ishbitz and Radzin. Because on a certain level in the world of Ishbitz and Radzin, nothing else matters but these teachings. And we're going to see throughout the week's Bezra Hashem how the teachings of Ishbitz and Radzin can teach us about what it means to be human, the intensity of being alive, the tekifus that we all have within us, and will hopefully shed some light on what it means to be a Jew, a servant of God, an individual seeking presence in this world in the, in the darkness of 2019. Bezrus Hashem, next week we're going to be discussing a famous statement about what it means to be alive and how in spite of the fact that it's very difficult, it's still better for us to be alive and to serve God in this world. This podcast is supported in part from a grant from the Hadar Institute. The music is by Zusha. The audio engineer is David Kwan. For more from the Shefa Podcast Network, visit our Facebook page and please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts.